<laughs> Please be seated. Thanks. Our scripture reading this morning for the sermon is found in Numbers chapter 25. It's the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, open to Numbers chapter 25. If you want to follow along on your bulletin, it's on page 10. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we come to your word. It is inerrant, fallible. It teaches us, and we ask that we would, you would help us to submit to it. We pray that your spirit would work to open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see truth, that you would lead us to all truth. And Father, that this would not be an academic exercise or something or a time where we just learn more facts about you, but but Father, you, the living God, may we encounter you. May our faith be increased, and may we live for you all the more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Numbers is actually a really bad name for the book that we just read from. I like the Hebrew title a lot better. The Hebrew title comes from the fifth word of the book, and it's in the wilderness. The title tells us exactly what the book is all about. Numbers is entirely concerned with the 40 years that the tribes of Israel wandered in the desert between Mount Sinai and the plains of Moab before they finally entered the promised land. Forty years in the wilderness. That's the entire topic of the book. And here, in the text before us this, this afternoon, the people of Israel, which are the second generation since the exodus out of Egypt, they're at the foot of the mountains of Moab. And this is the last place the nation sets up camp before they finally go into the promised land. And since they've been here setting up camp, a couple of really noteworthy things have happened. The most significant is this guy named Balak. He's the king of Moab. He got really nervous that Israel was nearby. Israel's not like a small group. They're, they're a giant nation. And he recruited a man named Balaam, who's a Mesopotamian prophet, to come and curse God's people. He's trying to, like, get them away. And this results in an almost comical series of events where Balaam's donkey speaks, 
warns the prophet of, of, that God's angel is about to kill him. And the end result is Balaam, this prophet, cannot curse God's people because God won't let him. In fact, three times in a row, Balak asked Balaam to curse God's people, but God's protection is upon them. And instead, Balaam has to bless God's people. And so Balak, this, 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 this Moabite king, becomes super angry, and he tries to find another way to remove God's blessing from the Israelites. And so the Israelites are camped in a semi-permanent place, relatively comfortable. They're at peace. I mean, yeah, they're having a, kind of a, a warfare of some sort, but they're not having to take up swords. They have food. They're enjoying rest. They're dwelling in the protection of God Most High. And this enemy prophet can't even curse them because God's hand is protecting them. That's where we begin today's message. That was like a 60-second or so, you know, summary of the numbers to where we are now. You know, if you call my phone between the hours of 10 p.m. and 7 a.m., it will not ring. You can try it if you'd like. It's in the directory if you want to give it a whirl. And the reason why is I have on my phone, do not disturb. Many of you maybe use the same feature. However, one of the nifty things about this feature of the phone is if you call three times within five minutes, it actually will go through. The call will punch through the do not disturb feature because the phone says this is probably an emergency. It's probably important. You see, important things are repeated, right? Emergency phone calls, they're not made once. They're repeated two, three, four times until the signal is connected and the message is received. Repetition is a signal that something urgent is going on. Well, the events here in Numbers 25 are just like that. They are mentioned all over Scripture. In fact, I would say this is the most popular topic in Scripture you have probably never studied. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians 10, this is mentioned. Revelation 2, Micah 6, Deuteronomy 4, Hosea 9, Jude 11, 2 Peter 2, Psalm 106. Every single one of those places in Scripture, Old and New Testament, are discussing what's called the sin of Peor. It's mentioned all over the Bible. And when Scripture repeats itself this many times, we really ought to pick up the phone and say, hello, what's the message? The Apostle Paul does the same thing. He mentions this in 1 Corinthians 10. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there, okay? So if you have a Bible or phone app or whatever you use, turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. In many ways, 1 Corinthians 10 is a companion passage to Numbers 25. Paul is telling us how to interpret the events of Numbers 25 for his readers then. So I'm going to read six, six verses. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If not, just listen. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul tells us that what was written down in Numbers 25 is an example warning us so we don't make the same mistake. 
And he sums it up in verse 14, which I didn't read, but he sums it up by saying, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. We could probably end the sermon right there. That's the message. Flee from idolatry. Don't make the same mistake that God's people did in Numbers. But let's be a little more specific. I, I, see, I see three real warnings here that help us flee from idolatry. And the first one is this, if you're a note-taking type, okay? The first warning is a warning against the nature of sin. A warning against the nature of sin. If you look back at Numbers 25, verse 1 tells us that the, be- the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. You know, that word in the Hebrew is sometimes translated as play the harlot. I think that's the NIV. It's the word zanah, and it's a verb that means to fornicate, to prostitute, and it specifically refers to marital infidelity or unfaithfulness. It's also used in Exodus 34 as a metaphor to describe Israel's covenant infidelity. In Exodus 34, that word is used to explicitly say that Israel is an unfaithful bride cheating on her husband, the Lord. It's a metaphor. And when the Israelites whored with the daughters of Moab in Numbers 25, what they did was they broke the first and second commandments. They broke the terms of this covenant. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. They violated the covenant that they had made with God just a few books earlier. Or again, to put it in marital terms, they broke their marriage vows to God. They said, yeah, we'll be your people. We'll obey you. And then right here they said, "Mm, we'll do what we want. In verse 5 of Numbers 25, they're described as having yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Now, Baal is just a general name of almost all the gods in the Old Testament, and Baal of Peor is just specifically one of the Canaanite gods. And so their sin was idolatry. Literally, they were bowing down to a Baal, to a specific Canaanite false god that was in opposition to the Lord. And yes, the people were in physical sin through the sexual relations. They were eating a feast. To a, to a false god, they were bowing down. But what I want you to notice is primarily a spiritual sin. Yeah, their external actions were the result of an internal spiritual reality. And though we must certainly heed the warning against sexual temptation, the nature of sin here is spiritual before it's carnal. It's spiritual first. You know, the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, which is one of our... Um, the great systems of helping us understand uh, what the scripture teaches. Question number 110 is describing the second commandment and the duties and the obligations against false worship. And it, it very pointedly calls false worship spiritual whoredom. Isn't that interesting? It's not a nice phrase. I'm not even going to say it again. I don't even like saying it. It's just one of those phrases that you're like, ugh, it sounds bad but it does clearly communicate the idea that the ultimate problem is spiritual. It is giving ourselves to another God, another idea, another value system, another philosophy, something else in place of the true and living God to whom we are in covenant relationship with. In verse 11 of Numbers 25, it tells us that Phineas, this priest named Phineas, he's jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people in my jealousy. God is jealous about things that are his. He says it right here in Numbers 25. 
Deuteronomy 5, we also remember that when God gives the second commandment not to worship false idols, he tells his people that I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In fact, Exodus 34 says, the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God's very name is jealous. You probably don't think of that one. You know, that's not one of those phrases people crochet and hang on their wall, you know. We don't have like, little, you know, remember the WWJD bracelets? We don't have God is jealous. Maybe we should, though. God is a jealous God. He has no partial claims. He has no casual relationships. He has no tolerance for rivals. As our creator, and especially through our covenantal union with Christ, he demands our all. He has a right as our creator, our head, our high priest, our king, to everything we are in the totality of our being. You see, the sin of the people here is nothing short of a full-blown rebellion. It's not just they're eating a little food they shouldn't or talking to some people they shouldn't. They are rebelling against the king. They have switched the flag that they're flying above their house. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rebellion against God's rightful claim to their full worship and loyalty. You might know the famous quote by R.C. Sproul. I, I, I've heard it many times, but I love it. He says that sin is cosmic treason. In fact, it's one of those, probably the most famous Sproul quote. When we think of what sin is, you know, if you go down on the street and just ask, ask the average person, they might list some of the Ten Commandments or, you know, lying or something along stealing. And certainly those things are sin. But if you kept digging down, you know, to the root level of what sin really is, sin is treason on the cosmic order. It is saying, I'm not going to live the way God wants. I'm going to live the way I want. Yet God may think he's sovereign, but I know better. That's really what the heart level of sin. The nature of sin is spiritual rebellion. It is spiritually cheating on God who rightfully claims every aspect of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the first warning we see is against the nature of sin. It is spiritual. It is cosmic treason. The second warning in Numbers 25, it's against the source of sin. Now, there's all sorts of sources of sin. Um, You know, we, we famously talk about the world, the flesh, the devil. Those are three kind of normal categories we think of when we think of the sources of sin. But here, at least in this particular passage, the influence is the world. It's the world. The idolatry was already in their hearts, certainly. But the fan of the flame, the fertilizer to the seed, if you will, it is the world. Numbers 31 and also Revelation 2-4 tell us that the Balaam and Balak, these two kind of you know, uh, evil characters from our, our text this afternoon, they actually had a strategy. This was not just something that kind of came into being where God's people got swept away into this activity that was cosmic being. They, they had a strategy to lure God's people with the Moabite women. See, they had first tried to destroy God's people directly by the curse of this other prophet. And when that failed, they said, you know what, let's try, let's get in through the back door. Let's lure the Israelites away to idolatry through these Moabite women and remove God's protection from them. And I want you to notice, and this is, by the way, this is very important. I want you to notice in Numbers 25 that the sin crept up on them by degree. I mean, it it lays it out. Just, Just look here. Notice how the men 
would first have had to allow the Moabite women near them. They know they weren't supposed to even be near them. First, they have to let them near them. Also, let's also note that it was the men who failed. The men's leadership was not there. What should the men have said? They should have said, this is not, this is not what God told us to do. This is not part of the covenant. This is not how we're going to be. No, we're not going to do that. But they didn't. They either went with it, or maybe worse, they kept silent. Silence. So the men allowed these Moabite women near. Then they had to talk to them. Then, one degree after another, they start slipping away from God's command. They weren't supposed to associate at all. Then they were invited to the banquet of the false god. They talk, finally, you know, hey, we like you. Here's an invitation, come to our banquet. You're going to love it. We got this new god, you're going to worship him, it's going to be great. Even accepting the invitation is an is a indirect renunciation of the true god. Then they actually went to the banquet, right? They got the invitation, they went they not only went, but they ate the food, sacrificed the idols. After they ate the food, they bowed down to these false gods. Every small step is a concession to the world and a renunciation of their loyalty to the true God. Each degree might have been slightly easy to justify on its own, even if the whole was, no, was not. And thus began their ruin. One small step at a time. So it always goes. A man never falls publicly who has not fallen privately through many small defeats. This is the pattern of conformity to the world then, and it is the pattern that we can fall into today as well. There was a failure at every step of the way to recognize the seed of sin that was growing and was encouraged by the world and would ultimately produce fruit, and that fruit was death. In this case, it was an immediate, an immediate reckoning of death. Matthew Henry in his commentary says that friendship of, of, the friendship of the wicked is always more dangerous than their enmity. The friendship of the wicked is always more dangerous than their enmity. You see, the world is a friend that will always, always pull us away from faithfulness to God, period. This is why James 4 describes it like this. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity is a, the word means active hostility. It means opposing. Opposing. It'd be easier if the world just came and said, we oppose you. We're against you. It's another thing when the world says, come and be my friend. We got you. You're going to like this. Come with us. I wonder what ways you and I might have conceded to the world without even knowing it. It's a somber thought. I wonder what ways us men, just speak to the men for a minute, I wonder what ways maybe we have let Moabite women into our camp or gone into theirs. Maybe we've let them into our phone or our computers or into our families in some way. This is honestly a very sobering thought, but the warning is clear. Do not love the world. Do not make it your friend. Be vigilant for the small, incremental pulling away from faithfulness to God that the world always calls Christians to. Now, I fully realize at this point in time in the message, you're probably thinking, oh, great, you're telling me not to be friends with anyone. <sighs> Give me a break. You want me to go live in a Christian bubble, ignore my neighbors, and just, you know, sing hymns all day long? Is that what you want? It could work. We could try it. We could try it. But that's not what I'm saying, and I don't think that's the application here. 
Yes, we live in the world. Conduct business in the world. Interact with people. Don't be socially awkward. Please, don't be socially awkward. Engage in cultural activities. Have relationships even to a point. Scripture does tell us to, be, to not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. We just have to be wise and make no mistake that the world is against Christ our King, and, he, and it always will be. That just has to be something we never forget. You know, if you want to study what it might look like to have the right balance of living in the world but not being of the world, you might consider Daniel. Daniel was living in exile among Babylonians, and he conducted business, uh, spoke their language, he engaged in cultural activities, he even held public office. But he never for one second gave up his faith or his allegiance to God, no matter the cost. The friendship of the world that we must avoid, it looks like entrusting yourself to the world and its purposes. Friendship with the world means we adopt its sexual ethic instead of God's. We see this all around us today in our highly sexualized porn culture we live in. Friendship with the world looks like adopting the values of the world, taking direction from it, deciding what is true and worthwhile based on its standards instead of the Bible, which is the infallible and errant word of God. Sinful friendship with the world is living as if there is no king or no kingdom to come. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus is rebuking uh, one of the churches, and he accuses them of holding to the teaching of the doctrine of Balaam. It's one of the places where, again, Numbers 25 is kind of pulled all the way forward. And Jesus says to the church, you hold to the doctrine that was the issue in Numbers 25. It's also in Jude and 2 Peter. You know what that doctrine is, though? The doctrine of Balaam that Jesus accuses the church of teaching and holding? It's the idea that you can fully cooperate with the world and still serve God. That's it. They believed it. They taught it. But what is true in Numbers is true in Revelation and is true today. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot. So the second warning is over. And the third warning is this, the consequences. The third and final warning, the consequences of our sin. We have the nature of the sin, the source of the sin, and now the consequences of our sin. In Numbers 25, verse 3, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because of their idolatry. There's a plague that breaks out among the common people, and 24,000 people die. God also commands Moses to kill the ringleaders and have the tribal chiefs go and execute judgment on those who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. That's a hard one to preach, isn't it? Well, I'm preaching it. You're listening. But 24,000 people? I mean, that, that has to strike against our sensibilities. This is why people believe that God in the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. You get that, right? I, I, I encounter people often. They're like, well, the God in the Old Testament was wrathful and mean, and the God in the New Testament is love. That's why a lot of churches in America don't even preach from the Old Testament because they look at it and they're like, ooh, I don't know what to do with that. It is what it is, guys. It is what it is. You see, it does seem harsh to our American sensibilities. 24,000 people killed by God. But let's, let's think about what the New Testament tells us. 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. 
So Paul writes in describing God's people as they go through this wilderness time. God was not pleased with them, and their bodies in the NIV were scattered in the wilderness. He enacted, he didn't wait, he enacted at that time his righteous, revengeful indignation against all false worship by littering the wilderness with the body of the idolaters. That's metal. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's only because we underestimate our sin and we underestimate God's holiness. We underestimate our sin. We think it's just a warm little fire we can sit by. We don't quite always grasp how holy our God is. And that God at that moment decided to enact his judgment on the people in the wilderness, and he's not doing that now, is because of his grace, his patience, and his forbearance, and his desire that all men come to saving knowledge through Jesus Christ our Lord. I challenge you to reconsider how you think of sin. God has not changed from Numbers 25 to now. He's the same God. He's just as righteous, just as holy, just as intolerant of rivals, just as jealous, just as serious about about justice. We often play with sin. We hold it close with one hand while acting like we shove it away with the other. But it is the bringer of death. Whereas Romans 7.13 tells us it works death in our lives. It always does. Just because that death is delayed doesn't mean it's not coming. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he says this, and he says, sin is so dark that it is incapable of light. It is so bitter that there is no way to make it sweet. It is so venomous that there is no way to make it wholesome. That's Jeremiah Burroughs. It's from a little book he wrote called The Evil of Evils, The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. If you're looking for a little summer light reading, maybe you could recommend picking that up. Uh, in that book, he urges Christians to choose affliction over sin. Boy, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Choose instead to suffer affliction than to sin. Well, we don't do that. We choose anything but to suffer. You know, we used to live in Virginia as a family, and one of the things we would do every summer about this time of year is we would go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. If you haven't been, it's a phenomenal beach. And the beach is there because of how, you know, the, the, the beach is pretty far out into the Atlantic. They have signs, like most, like most beaches, but these big, giant signs that say, Rip Currents, watch out. You could be swept out to sea and drowned. I mean, they're very explicit. They're large. You can't miss them. And one year there, I actually was swept out by a rip current. And I was out trying to boogie board. And next thing you know, I'm like, whoa, I, for, you know, holding on tight. And I was like, I got to get back to shore. By the time I made it back to shore, I was about a half mile north of where I had put in because I had been swept out and swept up. It was like a river, truly a river. It was scary to say the least, and I definitely am grateful that God in his providence kept me safe. But why are there warning signs? It's because it's easy to forget how immensely powerful and destructive the ocean can be. If you let your guard down for a moment, you could be swept away. Yeah, we play on the edge of the ocean, but we still have to be reminded. We can literally see it before us. We see the waves crashing, and we still have to be reminded that it can destroy us. Our sin is no different. We must be warned of the consequences. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, we are told that these things in Numbers 25 took place as an example of us, that we might not desire evil as they did. 
It's a signpost, in other words, that reads this. Do not desire evil. Do not be friends with the world. Do not engage in sexual immorality. It will destroy your life and maybe your soul. And Paul concludes the section in verse 11. And he says, These things were written as an example for us on whom the end of the ages has come. What a curious little expression. The end of the ages. We, you, you and me. As those living on this side of the cross, we are living in the culmination of all previous ages have come and they have found their yes and amen in Christ. The coming of Christ has brought all previous ages to their end in him. Those ages are completed and the lessons they teach are open to us now. So why did Paul include that warning then? You know, he, he felt the need to comment on it. They had numbers, they had the book, they could have read it. But Paul felt the need to remind the church in Corinth of this warning sign. I think the, the reason is there's striking similarities between the, the Gentile Christians in Corinth and the Israelites in Numbers 25. For example, they both enjoyed high privilege. They both had redemption, baptism, God's continuing protection and help. And Paul says that the Israelites, he comments on this in his 1 Corinthians, he says they even had Christ, the rock, following them, and sustaining them. Looking back in the Old Testament, that's what Paul says. Christ was with them. And yet the temptation of the heart to flirt with idolatry remained. You know, it may be that some of the Corinthians felt that their baptism, their communion, and the solid Reformed Presbyterian preaching under which they sat would have kept them from stumbling into idolatry. But Corinth was a tough place for a Christian to live. It was cosmopolitan, it was intellectually alert, it was materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. Sexual immorality pervaded every aspect of society, and they recognized no superior law but desire. Sounds similar, right? The human heart is never that different. People are never that different. And so Paul warns them that if it could happen to the Israelites in Numbers 25, it could happen to the Corinthians. And it could happen to us. The Corinthians were very sure of themselves, and so had the Israelites. But the idolatry reaped nothing but disaster. And so the warning of 1 Corinthians 10, 12 was for them and also for us. And it says this, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know when you have to be on your probably most guard as a Christian is when you think you're doing good. You know? And again, we don't need to be more somber than we should. But when you think, man, I've got it. I've got this stuff together. I'm a good Christian, you know? That's when, that's when, uh, that's when you're in danger. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So let us not end, though, on such a somber note. <laughs> what a joyful sermon, right? It is serious. And I recognize it's somber. So let's turn our attention to, again, the people who have the the, the culmination of the ages open to us that we can draw lessons from. We have an advantage and we have a perspective that even those in Corinth did not have. We can see this warning while standing under the protection of our Lord Jesus. In Numbers 25, verse 4 through 9, God's people bore the consequences of their sin. But something extraordinary also happens. We know from verse 6 that the whole congregation, they're weeping over the sin. They're weeping that people are being killed by this plague. 
they're, they're, they're trying to repent. They're like, what's going on? And they're all at the tent of meaning. They're repenting as the plague is killing them. And what's surprising is while that was going on in Numbers 25, a man named Zimri, he brings a midnight, a midnight woman with him past everybody who's weeping and repenting, and he goes to his own tent to continue in the same sin. He literally walks through the camp with his woman while people are dying and weeping for their sin. And Phineas, a jealous priest, he leaves the congregation of the weeping people, grabs a spear, goes into the tent where Zimri and the woman are, and drives the spear through their belly while they're in the very act. Verse 10 tells us that this turned back God's wrath from the people, and the plague immediately stopped. Phineas is commended, and God blesses him with an everlasting covenant of peace and a perpetual priesthood. You know, as a priest, that actually was not his role. His job was not to punish crime. But he was called by special inspiration of God, led by the Holy Spirit, to act as an instrument of judgment and atonement in that time. So does that mean that Pastor Ben and the elders can come after you with the spear when you're sinning? He paid me some money to say it. No, I'm just kidding. In some ways, yes. In some ways, yes. But rather than a spear, the elders, the pastors come after you with a shepherd's hook. And you should not resent them when they do. For it is their task and their job to shepherd you and pull you away from idolatry and to bring you, to a flock, to bring you back into the flock and bring you back to the true vine where you are safe and protected. And so what I want to draw your attention to is that God's righteous wrath against sin, and it is righteous, by the way, it was satisfied when the correct punishment was met. God is not a tyrant. He wasn't then, and he's not now. God is not vindicative. God is good, and he is just, and he always does what is right. The bad news is our sins are not any different than the ones in Numbers 25. The consequences for our unfaithfulness and our lack of obedience to Christ, our lack of fidelity to the covenant, it is death. But the good news of the gospel is, is that there is one who took that death for us. There is one who was so filled with the Holy Spirit, full of grace and truth, that he left the glory of heaven, became a man, lived an obedient life, and died the death that you and I deserve. This one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, we are united to him, both in his life and in his death. Justice is satisfied because Jesus died where we should have. When Phineas took up the spear and he pierced the sinners, the sinners there, he made atonement for Israel. But it was the nails and the spear that pierced Jesus that made the atonement for our sins. Phineas' act was a shadow pointing forward to the reality of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, take heed the warning before us from this passage. Idolatry is spiritual whoredom. It comes most often through friendship with the world, and its consequences are severe. But let us also rejoice, and I mean truly rejoice, in the perfect, complete, and permanent salvation we have in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who never changes. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And though sometimes it's difficult to read these warning signs, these harsh signposts that you have laid out for us and opened to us of the utter sinfulness of sin and how high and holy you are, Father, may we not miss it. May we take seriously our own sin and our duty to live faithfully for you, ever trusting in Christ, ever looking to him and his work on the cross, not our righteousness, not our good works, but the works of another. Father, do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.